Well, good morning and Happy New Year. The first Sunday of the new year. Uh, so welcome as we begin a year of worship together. And this morning, hopefully beginning with great encouragement for great growth in 2020. That's my intention. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. I think it'll be displayed. And then also from chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. But before we read, let me prepare us for our reading this way. It is that time of year. As we begin a new year together, it is the time where in our culture, New Year's resolutions abound. Now, there are at least two camps on New Year's resolutions. Some of you love them. You are structured people. You are self-improving people. And you love the opportunity to go to work and to structure new change in your life. But social media will show you there are just as many people who hate New Year's resolutions and want nothing to do with them whatsoever. So I realize the room is at least divided in those two camps when I even mention New Year's resolutions. But to those who are for change and resolving to change, how's it going on day five? Some of you maybe are tearing it up. Things are going really well. You're getting those miles logged in or that time logged in and you're eating the way that you said you would eat. There are three typical resolutions, statistics say, in our American culture. Those are, number one, to eat better. Number two, to exercise more. And number three, to look better, which is why we would do one and two. And if it's not to look better, then you can insert any other method of visible, surface-level, skin-deep change that people are dying for. Now, there are also three typical motivators in our culture and this is based on my experience with myself and with others. Number one motivating factor for change tends to be people are frustrated with themselves. Self-loathing. They're angry, they're tired, and they've had enough of how things are, and they're going to they're gonna change it, by golly. Number two motivating factor for change that's typical in our culture is fear. Fear of consequences, being threatened to change. And those tend to be our medical doctors that we have to go see who are telling us, look, you have got to do X, Y, and Z and take care of yourself. And so then our response to that is, oh no, I better do that. And that can be a powerful motivating factor. But there's a third motivating factor that we're going to hear in Scripture this morning. And for all of us, I would hope it would be what rises to the surface this year. And that motivating factor is seeking to be faithful to God. Being called by Him to change and wanting to please Him 
by meeting that call and expectation. All of us know what it is to be frustrated with ourselves. We all know what it is to be fearful of consequences. Those are great motivating factors. But the supreme motivating factor in the Christian life is to be faithful to God and to the calling that He has on our lives. And so, behavior modification is not enough. It's skin deep. What we need is deep change where God himself works deeply within us and in our hearts to produce in us what he desires most. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, then chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Hear God's word. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Then chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, the conclusion to it all. Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. Let's pray that God might open our eyes to see the wonders of his word. Let's pray. Lord, would you do that very thing this morning? Would you open our sinful hearts, our clogged ears, our stubborn selves? Would you open us up to see the beauty and wonder of being called to change? 
of being given power for change, and of living a Christian life that can make an impact on those around us. We ask this. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So my wife was gone recently for about a week, and we have two children at home, two children that were off at college. And so for those of you who are married with children, you understand the importance of what I just said. My wife was gone for almost a week, and I was left in charge. Overwhelming responsibility uh, for a husband and a father. Just tremble at the thought of that. It was my job to make sure that the two young boys stayed alive. (laughs) That they were fed sometimes several times a day and that they stayed reasonably clean. I had to do that. This was my responsibility all of a sudden for a week. And also on top of that, you do realize I'm kidding and all that. Please don't misread me. I also had to keep the house clean because she was going to come back. She would walk back in that door and she would see how we had lived while she was gone. And that is enough to motivate one by fear, which, remember, is a powerful motivating factor in life. Now, for those who are married, those who are husbands, those who have shared an experience like this, which I'm playfully using as an illustration, I think you'll be honest and you'll admit that we have learned, husbands have learned, there are at least two ways to clean. The first one I call spot cleaning, surface level cleaning, right? Um, That would be so that when she walks in the door, there's no visible clutter. So you have to hide everything that is considered clutter. And if it cannot be seen, it cannot be clutter, right? It's unseen. So carpet, hiding under carpet, hiding behind the couch, throwing in a closet, these things will buy a little bit of time. (laughs) a little bit of time. Uh, You've got to take the garbage out. You have to take the garbage out if it's a week-long exit where she's gone. You need to make sure, I found, that the sink is empty, that dishes are washed. And this is where I have a rule when I'm in charge, and that is we use paper products and only paper products. (laughs) Plastic cups, plastic utensils. It saves saves so much. (laughs) And then the last thing that I've learned about spot cleaning, that surface level cleaning, is that you just, before she comes home, you've just got to spray air freshener everywhere, everywhere in the house. Make it smell clean, make it smell fresh. And then also make sure you align the pillows on the bed and pull up the sheet so it looks like everything is just as it was when she left. Now that is surface level cleaning. And perhaps I'm the only one who's experienced this or lived through this in some way. If so, I'm embarrassed. But if not, I'm telling the truth, and you know that I'm telling the truth. But there is a second method of cleaning that tends to be foreign to us guys, and that is deep cleaning, real cleaning. Not the appearance of cleaning, but real cleaning. And you have to do it all. If you're going to have a deep clean, 
you can't cut corners. You can't go through the motions. You're going to have to do it at all, just like she would, right? Just as she would. If, if she would do it, you would have to do it. And you can't wait till the last minute. There's no way to wait till the last minute. You have to clean as you go, which I remember my mother always saying, and I never knew what it meant. Clean as you go. Makes it easier in the end. Well, now I know. Now I understand. There are two kinds of cleaning when it comes to our homes or to our cars. There's the appearance of clean, where we can trick the system for the short term. And then there's real cleaning, deep cleaning, that's more than a half-hearted effort. It's actually sincerely clean. Now, everything that I've just said, everything I've just sought to illustrate is true spiritually about who we are as people. We can have an appearance of having it all together and being clean and well put together, and that can deceive some for a time. But there is something that the Scriptures talk about, about being deeply cleaned and experiencing what this morning I'm calling deep change. It's not half-hearted. It's actually the Holy Spirit working in the faith and the character of His people. The Scripture is concerned with one of those two kinds of cleanings. And it's deep cleaning. This morning I have three simple points for you. Very simple. That is that we are called to change. If you are a Christian, you are called to change. Secondly, if you're a Christian... You have hope for change. There is great hope that you will not remain the same as the person that you were or that you are. That God is at work. There is hope for change. And then thirdly, there's fuel for change. There's food for change. And we need to eat in order to change. So those three points, let me explain very briefly. In our text, chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, who's writing to a young church and to young Christians, writing to them from a distance, checking on them, having heard about their conduct and their misconduct, is now writing this pastoral letter of instruction and correction and encouragement. And he says this, he says, we instructed you, we asked you, and now we urge you to do so more and more. And you hear that repetition of there are expectations of you. We've asked you to do this, we've instructed you to do this, and now we're saying to do it more and more. And Paul here takes the role of an instructor of one saying, look, it's, it's time to move on. It's time to grow. It's time to change. Now, in our tradition as Presbyterians and as Reformed Presbyterians, we understand that the biblical concept here is what we call sanctification. And that word sanctify came up in our passage as we read. And sanctification, simply put, is that lifelong process where God is changing his people, conforming them more and more into his own likeness and image. First, he justifies them, he saves them, he announces them pardoned of their sin, but it doesn't stop there. God continues this 
work of salvation where he actually starts to do deep cleaning in his people and in every one of his people. Not in some, but in all. Listen to what the shorter catechism, uh, question 35, says about sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace where we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And I want you to hear that language of more and more. It's the language of our passage. It's that God's work of salvation is progressive. It's growing. It's reaching. It's working deeper and deeper within his people. God is at work. This is the work of sanctification. It is a more and more work of salvation. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 10. And this change is also through and through, which is what he says in chapter 5, verse 23. So I want you to understand, as we think about growing this year, as we live in a culture of resolution, that we do understand God is calling us to change. But it is a change that is more and more and through and through as God the Holy Spirit is working in us. A progressive and pervasive change that is always a deep change. It's never only surface level. It's never just skin deep. And so Paul is urging them to change. He's calling them to change. C.S. Lewis, a, a quote I've heard for years, and I love this quote. He says, Christians don't need to be told what to do so much as we need to be reminded what to do. Which is to say, we're familiar enough with God's Word to know what He's called us to do and told us to do. But we do need to be reminded because how quickly we forget, how soon we forget what God is saying should be true in each of us. So, in the way of applying this, Now, some of these are going to get pretty specific because Paul gets pretty specific in our passage. But if God has called us to change, and if his word and his spirit produce that change in his people, then perhaps in 2020, you and I should raise our bar of expectation for change in ourselves. Maybe you and I should take this promise of God and his saving work seriously enough to say, you know what? I need to raise my bar of expectation for who God is calling me to be and how he's calling me to live. And then I think it's appropriate to raise your bar of expectation in others, in other Christians whom God the Holy Spirit is working in. I found in my own life and in my own ministry oh, we are so quick to let ourselves off the hook, right? Uh, If you're young, young folk will say, oh, I'll get serious later, right? It's time to sow the wild oats now, and we'll grow and get serious later, right? We let ourselves off the hook. We let our children off the hook. Or if you're older, no longer a student, we'll say, Well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. At this age, I am what I am. And we're letting ourselves off the hook. 
So we have all these mechanisms, whether we're young or old, to let ourselves off the hook. My first application for all of us this morning, myself included, is this. Can you raise your bar of expectation for the kind of change God wants to work in you this year? Can you raise your bar of expectation for the others around you? Can you encourage them, push them forward? Let's stop letting ourselves off the hook. If God the Holy Spirit is present, then God is at work. And he is at work making change, producing change in his people. God has called us to change. And my second point, there's hope for change. It's more than just being called to change. He actually gives us hope to expect that change. And that hope is always found in his word and in his spirit. And it's always blessed by his people. And so much of the Christian life is showing up. Where God's word is, where God's people are, God's spirit is. And that is an avenue for change. That is the greenhouse for growth, we call it in RUF. We want our students to get in the greenhouse of growth where all of the elements are present to produce healthy, nourishing growth in students. And the same is true for church members. Showing up, putting yourself where God's word, God's spirit, and God's people are will help produce this healthy growth and change. The scriptures themselves give us great hope for change, that we're not left alone, that we're not left in our own power to change. We're told in verse 3 that it's God's will that you be sanctified. It's his will. It's his desire, and it's what he has ordained to be true. And if God wills it, it will come to pass. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need. For life and godliness. He has given us what we need to grow. And then thirdly, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The God who began this work of salvation in us will complete that work. He will glorify us. He will sanctify us because he has justified us. And so there's great hope. None of us is left to remain as we are. And no doubt in a room with this many people, there are some of you that feel left behind. You feel like, you know, it's, it's just hard to show up because I feel like my life is in no way together. And I feel like I'm around people who have it together and it's overwhelming and maybe I just don't need to show up anymore. You need to show up. You need God's encouraging people. You need the, the blessing of his word. You need the blessing of his sacrament to push you forward, to encourage you forward with hope for change. Now, Paul gives us some specific examples of the deep change I'm talking about. Remember, I'm not talking about surface level change, the appearance of change, which our culture is preoccupied with. Paul's calling us to deep change. And listen to five examples of what he gives us. Specific deep change that we can hope for God to work in each of us. In verses 3 through 8, he says to avoid sexual immorality, pagan lusts, to be holy and disciplined with your body. 
to avoid sexual immorality, pagan lusts, to be holy and disciplined with your body. Paul, these are his specific examples of the kind of change that Christians should work for and be hopeful that they can experience. How many of our lives have been touched by sexual immorality, pagan lusts, unholiness, and failure to be disciplined with our body? Which could be any number of things, including food, drink, exercise. So very practical, tangible example of what it is to seek deep change. Then verse 9, Paul says, love one another more and more. Love one another more and more. And Archie mentioned this morning, and he mentions it frequently, that you are a people who love each other well. And Archie wants you to know each other more and more. How many times have you been introduced to each other by Archie Moore going out the door? Right? We can laugh about that, but what is he doing? He wants us to know each other more and more. That we might love each other more and more. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Then in verse 11a, he says, lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Which is very interesting to read. Commentators try to help us understand in our culture what they were saying in the Greek culture about that. And it seems to me it's very similar to what we mean by that. That they were busybodies getting into each other's business, disrupting peace, not loving each other well, and that they should mind their own business, keep to their tasks, do what God's called them to do, and not be preoccupied by anything else. And then he says in 11b, work with your hands so that you can win the respect of outsiders. And that too means exactly what it sounds like. He's speaking to their work ethic. And that some were not working hard. Some were relying on the generosity of others. And in that Greek culture, physical labor was beginning to be looked down upon. For the love of the mind... They thought less of the hand. And Paul says Christians, mm -mm, they love each other. They mind their own business. They stay on task and they work hard in such a way that even their work ethic and their peace becomes a means of evangelism. Winning the respect of those looking at them, trying to make sense out of the church, trying to make sense out of Christians. We're called to change. We have hope for deep change that even touches the sexual being that we each are. And then thirdly, we need fuel for change. Or I'll say we need food for change. Now, if you know me, and most of you probably don't, I love food. Food is my love language. I could talk about food all day long. I could cook. I could enjoy. I love food. And food is central in the Christian life. But it's real food. It's nourishing food for the soul. And some of the food, some of the fuel that can generate this sanctification, this, this growth within us, boils down to a few basic truths 
One of them is this. That righteousness, that sanctification that God requires, He also provides. The very thing He requires, He provides. Just as He told Abram, you need a lamb, God would provide that lamb Himself. God would provide the sacrifice to spare Abraham's son. God always provides the lamb. And that provision is seen nowhere more clearly than on the table. That's the food for change. That's the fuel for change. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, it is a beautiful thing in worship on Communion Sunday, and we're so busy or so late, um, we maybe don't notice it. But you know, this table is centered with the door of the church. And when you walk in on Communion Sunday, you see the display. Or you should see the display. And it is a testimony that speaks to us that there is food being offered for our faith. Not just this morning, but every time we gather. But it's visibly displayed in such a way that you, you almost have to bump into it. And it's there for a reason. And it's on a table for a reason. Because it's to be offered to God's people. Because we need food. We need nourishment. And God sent His Son and offered Him as the very food that our soul needs. It's in the form of broken bread and poured out wine. And that provision, what God requires, He provides. He laid down His life Himself for His church. It was God Himself who would provide the Lamb. It was God Himself who would be the Lamb. John Newton, in his hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, the sixth stanza has this, says this, Though weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought, it's when I see thee as thou art, that I'll praise thee as I ought. Do you know that word? Though weak is the effort of my heart, my heart fails. And cold my warmest thought. It's when I see thee as thou art that I'll praise thee as I ought. This morning, we're called to change. But we're encouraged that we have every good hope that that change we're called to is possible. And God himself fuels that change. It's wonderful to have communion on the first Sunday of the year. Because this launches us into 2020 with a sense of expectation, or it should, that you are not left to remain as you are. But the Christian life is a lifelong process of change. It's a lifelong process of repentance. You know, when we speak of repentance, we don't think about something you did a long time ago. Repentance is in the Christian life. It is to be a daily event in the Christian life. And so we begin 2020 together, coming to the table, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And after we come to the table, we're going to sing. But so that we might really sing well together, we might really know what we're singing, 
our closing hymn after the table is going to be, Take My Life and Let It Be. And it's probably familiar to almost all of you. It's a traditional hymn, familiar hymn. But let me underscore some of the things we're praying regarding sanctification when we sing that hymn together. We're praying for the Lord to take our life and to let it be consecrated, which is to say to let it be holy. Let it be exactly as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then we say, take my hands and take my feet, take my voice, take my lips, take my silver and my gold, take my will and take my love. That's what we would call a prayer for deep cleaning. That all of our parts that make up our whole, we're offering to the Lord and saying, Lord, do something with them. Sanctify them. Change them this year that we might be the church and that we might be more beautiful as the church in the world that God has called us to live. Let's pray and we'll prepare for the table. Lord, it is true that deep change comes from the deep work of the Holy Spirit. And we would pray for that work even now. Having heard your word, and now as we come to the table, Lord, would your spirit be at work in us, bringing not just the call to change, but that hope for change, and now the fuel for change. So Lord, bless your people that we might be your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.